0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this, the 500th episode of Risk, you'll hear Kumail Nanjiani.
1: I was told that looking at a woman with a lustful gaze was the same sin, this is true, as stabbing the prophet's nephew in the back while he is praying.
0: That and more. But first, I just want to give a huge, huge shout out to our latest Patreon members who have given $25 or more per month. They are Susie Cody, David Gordon, Catherine Waring, Tallulah West, Julia Nash, The Mugs, Sienna Sanchez, and Christine Ferrara. Oh my gosh, guys, we are so deeply appreciative. As you know, we're going through the roughest patch we've ever gone through in our uh, 10 and a half years of existence here. It got a little bit existential there. We do think we are going to get a small business loan, but we still need lots and lots and lots of help from our fans. So if you can manage it, oh my gosh, it would mean so much to us to go to patreon.com slash risk. I'm about to upload another check-in. You know, every now and then we do these little check-ins from Kevin there, or sometimes interviews with storytellers or members of the staff. Lots of bonus stories are there. There's lots of wonderful stuff to be found if you join our Patreon at patreon.com slash risk. I've said many times that we have Every intention of keeping this going, keeping the podcast coming out no matter what, for as long as we possibly can. You know what? I really am super proud of how high quality the podcast has remained throughout 2020, despite despite total chaos and working overtime and, you know, figuring out new ways of doing things and just craziness behind the scenes here at risk. I really do feel like we have managed to keep putting out an absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal show during this really challenging time. I have felt like the podcast has been a genuinely helpful mental health self-care thing for me to be involved with during this time, the live streams, the episodes. And so it's really exciting to be putting this one out today because it's a little bit of a walk down memory lane and it's kind of a re remembering how much all this means to us. But again, thank you so much, so much gratitude to those Patreon members who have pitched in. If you haven't, Now would be about as good a time as any (laughs) for us to do it. And if it's at all possible for you to up the amount that you're giving to us there, hugely, hugely helpful. It really does help keep this running.
2: And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers
3: end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. My mommy's name is White Whitehouse and she loves Risk. Actually, so do I. Whoa, whoa, whoa! whoa.
0: whoa. Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, this is Roy Eldridge behind me now, and that was Risk storyteller and story studio teacher Julia Whitehouse's daughter Domino singing the Risk theme song at the top, and... This is the 500th episode of Risk. I I, I, I can't believe it. I can't, I can hardly believe it. I, I remember when I started the podcast in 2009, I had this fantasy. I used to say, oh my God, what if we make it to the point where a person can have listened to an episode of Risk every day for a whole month now a person could listen to an episode per day for about a year and a half (laughs) you know it's it's ironic because when we had our 10th year anniversary when we were celebrating 10 years of doing risk I thought that it was incredibly ironic that we were having not as good a year financially at that point as we had the year before. So I was so bent out of shape about that. I was like, oh my God, we're celebrating 10 years, and yet we're having a worse year financially this year in 2019 than we were last year in 2018. Well, now. <laughs> I look back at that 10-year episode, and I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ, take me back there (laughs) as far as how we're doing financially. Like, now we're celebrating 500 episodes, and we are in a, you know, almost existential place. But, like I said in the opening, we're not going anywhere. We're just gonna keep on keeping on by any means necessary kind of like this extraordinary movement i i i'm just gonna keep telling people look we really are going through a time of incredibly high stress and lots of bad news and lots of emotional turmoil however we are also going through a period where there is so much inspiring action being taken by the movement and i just want to say there's nothing better there's nothing better for the soul than making those phone calls signing those petitions writing letters going to anti-racist trainings showing up for rallies and marches spreading the word about rallies and marches and other activism offering healing services or whatever services you can to other activists Let's just keep it up because we've got so much momentum right now. And the only way to make a real difference is to keep this momentum going for years. I went to another Black Trans Lives Matters rally a couple nights ago in McCarran Park. That was just beautiful. So moving. Now, I was not there for the uh, March for Liberation in Manhattan today for Gay Pride Day, where the police just started beating people up for no reason at all, just started charging people for the sake of charging people. Perfectly peaceful protest yet again. So that is now 672 incidents of police brutality since George Floyd was murdered that have been caught on video uh greg de on twitter is keeping track 672 incidents of unnecessary police terrorism uh for all to see regardless of whatever the corporate media is telling you but we've got the love we've got the community we've got The people power and so let's keep it going now for this the 500th episode I thought it would be fun since you know it's getting a little rarer that we're able to hear live in front of an audience stories I thought it would be fun to take a look back at some of our very favorite stories by people who were not so well known when they first did risk but are now everyone's favorites one of the greatest joys of creating this podcast is absolutely the people we have met along the way. That includes fans, storytellers, staff members, the risk community is so beautiful. And it's such an honor to sit down with people and work with them on the sharing of stories that mean so much to them from their lives. There's just nothing quite like it. There's just nothing like that. That's why I can't imagine myself doing anything else. That's why we gotta keep this going. <laughs> and another thing you're gonna hear during the course of this episode are uh, little messages from some of the fans, some of the storytellers, some of the staff you know, wishing us a happy 500th episode. So let's get to it. We're going to have a lot of fun today. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Julio Torres, a writer for Saturday Night Live, a producer and actor for Los Spookies on HBO, and his phenomenal special for HBO called My Favorite Shapes. But before Julio, we're going to hear from Michelle Bouteau. Oh my gosh, Michelle has been doing so much. She's been in the movies Someone Great, Isn't It Romantic, Sell By, and Always Be My Maybe. She hosts the WNYC podcast Adulting. She's been in TV series like First Wives Club and Tales of the City. So (laughs) Michelle has been very busy since she did the show. The story we're going to feature from Michelle, she shared it at the San Francisco Sketchfest one year, and we called it Fly Girl.
3: Christine Gentry here, Risk Storyteller and huge fan. Happy 500th episode, Kevin and team. Thank you so much for hosting some of my most memorable storytelling experiences. Since my first Risk Slam at Bar on A in the spring of 2011 to now, you have meant so very much to me and my journey.
4: This is Brian Kett. Storyteller and story coach for Risk, and I just want to congratulate Kevin and the team on 500 episodes that each really showcase the many facets of what it means to be human. So, cheers!
3: Happy episode number 500 to Risk from Lena here in Denmark. I usually go running in the forest when I listen to Risk, and it almost feels like the trees are telling me all your amazing stories. Such amazing lives those trees have lived.
5: Happy 500 Risk, this is David Crabb. The first place I ever told a story was at a Risk show, and it was a story that would blossom out to become my solo show, which would become my memoir, Bad Kid. It is such an honor working with all of you and getting to teach at Story Studio, and I'm so proud of the work that y'all do, and I love you so much. Happy anniversary.
6: This is Amy Salloway. I'm a storyteller on Risk and I'm the Midwest instructor for the Story Studio. And I remember when I first found the Risk podcast, I felt like I had found my community, like I had found a storytelling home. And I still feel that way and it's awesome. So thank you for existing, Risk podcast, and happy 500th episode.
7: What's up, bitches? So, I'm originally from Jersey. Um, Nice, Jersey people in the house. I usually don't tell people because I feel like it's a speech impediment. It's just, I'm so embarrassed. And the part of Jersey I'm from is sort of like Fargo meets the Jersey Shore. Like it was Italian and Polish and and, like Irish. And you know, if you were Polish, you were very exotic. And there was like one Indian family and one black family. And then like us, like the light-skinned Caribbean people. My mom's from Jamaica, my dad's from Haiti. And everyone would be like, damn, shouldn't you be darker? And I'm like, it's called colonialism, bitch. (laughs) They'd ask me all types of questions. Like, why don't you have a basket of fruit on your head? That was my guidance counselor. So dealing with all these questions all the time at 17, like a senior in high school, like I knew I was too cute for a whole zip code. You know what I mean? I knew I had a chance to be the fat Lisa Bonet. I'm like, get me the fuck out of here. I still do. And so I applied to a bunch of schools in Miami because I'm like, that's where it's at. Like, I need to go to Miami. And I finally got in to this uh, university called Florida International University, and I was supposed to go to university in Miami, but they drug tested. I was like, no, no. Um, (laughs) And international wasn't even the word. Like, people were like, oh, my God, Michelle, you are so smart. I'm like, me? And they're like, yeah, your English is so good. I'm like oh, I'm American. <laughs> but Miami was amazing. Like this kid from like Trenton, Jersey. I went to Miami, the air was warm. My farts smelled like pineapple. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> there was palm trees everywhere. Every store I went into, all I heard was Gloria Estefan's rhythm Is gonna get you. I'm like, when? <laughs> when is that rhythm gonna fucking get me? <laughs> There were so many like affluent Caribbean people everywhere. It was like the Caribbean Cosby show without the rape. It was amazing. (sighs) And I didn't have to explain to anybody why I look like this. I just was and it was awesome. So this is also the mid nineties and I was also a bit of a wannabe gangster bitch. Like a lot of lined lips, a lot of eyeliner, a lot of Carl Kanai, cross colors, a lot of who you call on a bitch, a lot of that. (laughs) Nobody was calling me. I didn't even have a cell phone. It's fine. I had the Malcolm X pendant and the book in my back pocket. i never even read it, but I was like, do the right thing. Very militant. But listen to boys, to men. It was a lot. It's a lot of emotions. Like my friends didn't even want to go out with me after a certain point. They're like, girl, this is a new shirt. I don't want to go out with you tonight. I know we're going to get in a fight. I don't want to fuck this shirt up. Like, I would be at a restaurant, and I'd be like, who's she looking at? I know she ain't looking at me. Who the fuck does she think she is looking at me like that? And they'd be like, that's our waitress. Relax. Why is this bitch so crazy? So that was me. But it was also a very Jersey thing to be so angry all the time, right? Trust. Still is. <laughs> Don't fuck them. And... I also want to be a fly girl. I wanted to be, oh, okay, in Living in color. He, I wanted to be a dancer so bad. I, I wanted Paul Abdul to tell me what to do, Rosie Perez, I was like, oh. I wanted to be a backup dancer for Usher when he was young and be like, my way, my way, well, I'll stay home. Like, I just want to do all that. <laughs> so this was me, okay? And then my freshman year in college, I went out dancing one weekend with my friends. Went to this like teeny bobber place, like 18 to 21. And I had a gang of grape soda. And I was like, let's dance. (laughs) And we were hitting all the hot moves and shit. And I was like, oh, Janet don't know what she's missing right now. It was great. (laughs) And I remember that night, because that's the night I saw the most beautiful man I had ever seen in my life. He was like kid from Kid and Play, that's the light skin one. He was like him, but just like a little bit fatter. It was beautiful. He was tall and gorgeous with that curly hair, that high top. And he was like dancing, like he was the tallest one in the room. I'm like, oh my God. And he had like these crazy baggy khakis on and like this really baggy polo shirt. And it didn't even look like it was clearance. It was like regular price. I'm like, oh my God. Oh my god. And then he had like this gold crucifix that hung real low with bounce, and I was just like, put it in my face. So, like, I didn't realize what a lady boner was till that point because he also had this really baggy like camo green fishing vest on. But he wasn't a fisherman. <laughs> And I just looked at my friend, and I was like, so many pockets! <laughs> and I did that thing you do on the dance floor when you're 18 years old, you know what I mean? I try to make eye contact, and I was like, no. And then he'd look again, I'm like, no. And then, like, he somehow, like, beanie-manned his way over to me. <laughs> I felt like... You know how like short women are like, oh, tall guys, I feel like a woman. I don't know what that's like, because I have a sturdy gait. <laughs> but next to this guy, I felt like a skinny white girl. So I was like, oh my God. And like I could just smell his neck and it smelled like jacquard noir. I'm like, yes, 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 yes. And we danced like call and answer like the whole time, like a lot of this. (laughs) And we danced the whole night and he didn't say anything to me till the end when the lights came on and he goes, you good? And I was like, yeah. (laughs) And then he gave me his number. I gave him my number, beeper numbers. And (laughs) yeah, I'm old bitch. And he beat me the next day. And I remember as we were walking out to the parking lot, we both had the same car, Mazda Proteges. And I was like, oh my God, we are so adult. We are so in love already. And it turns out as we were talking the next day for hours and hours, both of our moms leased our cars for us. And I'm like, we're amazing. (laughs) So I was new to Florida, going to school there and i um, studying communications, and my dad, who's this Haitian guy, was just like, you know how to speak English, you can communicate. Why are you taking communications? I'm like, let me do my thing. And Eric, his name was Eric, also spells rice. He um, didn't go to college. He worked at Best Buy and sold weed. I was like, this motherfucker is adult. He's good at math, he's good at electronics. That's why he had all them khakis. I was like, let's go. Every time I talked to him on the phone, I had butterflies in my stomach. Like I didn't even know what that was. I was talking to my friend, I was like, how come every time I talk to him, I feel like I want to take a shit? She's like, do not know anything. And he was my first everything. Like, I don't know if you guys remember the first time you fell in love, but I was falling in love hard. Like he was the first one I did everything with sexually. Like I had hooked up before, but I had never like been in a relationship. And he was the first guy ever to be like, come sit on my face. (laughs) And so I did. (laughs) And he was like, get up, I can't breathe. (laughs) I don't know, I need more direction. (laughs) But it was wonderful, I mean, you know, we were making plans and, and time felt like it just fucking flew, like, freshman year passed and sophomore year passed and we were still together and I was like going strong, coming up with like names for our imaginary kids and we made plans to move in together and get an apartment by the Olive Garden with beige carpet and white blinds, you know, real adult shit and now I'm a junior in college and I still just love the fuck out of him. And I noticed though, three years in that his mom's house didn't look like my mom's house or his friend's house. You know, in my mom's house, There's pictures of me everywhere from um, graduation and field trips and all this other stuff. And he didn't even have any of that stuff in his room. Like, back in the day, we had collages. You know what I mean? Like, we didn't have cameras on our cell phones and shit, so you'd have to go out physically with a camera, okay, and take some pictures, print them. It's a camera where, okay... (laughs) And you'd cut out all those pictures of you and people and put them up on a little board and be like, look at all the friends I got. <laughs> and if you were a good friend like me, you made doubles. Sometimes you would upgrade to like, you know, from Glossy to matte and give it to your friends and be like, hey bitch, put me in a collage. But Eric didn't have any of that stuff. And I was like, Boo you need to get your collage game on point. And he was like, oh man, I don't give a shit about that stuff. I was like, you are so cool. (laughs) Then one night I had a really bad dream and my mom told me it's because I had spicy food. (laughs) And I had this dream that Eric told me he never graduated high school. So I called him the next day and I was like, boo, I had this crazy dream that you told me you never graduated high school. And he was like, Michelle, I didn't. And I was like, "The fuck." And <laughs> he's like, "Honestly, I never graduated high school." And he's sort of crying, and he's like, "I don't even know how to read very well." And I'm like, "What are you talking about?" So he went into like this whole story, and I knew that his dad died when he was young. But apparently when his dad died when he was 10 years old, he left the family with a lot of debt. And his mom had to work three jobs to pay off the debt and to keep him afloat. And he was depressed in fifth grade and just dropped out of school and never went back and no one even noticed. So in my mind, I'm like, okay. Like, I don't even know how to process this shit. But my parents have been married for 48 years and they're dead inside. And I'm like, that's what love is. (laughs) So I go... I'm going to stay with you, and I'm going to help you, and we're going to fix this. Like, I was some Coldplay song. I'm just like, and I will try. Like, it was so stupid. But I was like, I'm going to fix you. And so I stayed with him, and I tried to find him, like, nighttime classes and all this other stuff, but he always had an excuse why he couldn't go. And this is when, guys, you know you have to leave a relationship when you start saying shit like, but you say you learn how to read from me. that's when you probably should go. But I also never been in love so hard before, so I was like, how do I just break up? It was like one of these relationships where it took me like over a year to break up because we always had something planned and I really loved his family and he loved my family. Like, how do you break up with someone just because they won't learn how to read? And I started going through my mind, like, how the fuck did I not even know this? Like a low-budget CSI detective, I was like... (laughs) Is this why when I write poetry, you always have me read it to you? I thought you were a lazy guy. This motherfucker didn't know how to read. Like, is this why we always go to the Olive Garden, you order the same shit? I just thought you loved lasagna. This motherfucker didn't know how to read. So by this time, I have graduated college and I'm moving to New York City to get a job and to live my life. And I know that we are different people, but I still love him. He's still my first phone call and my last phone call. So as I move to New York, he gives me a hot cell phone. He has two hot cell phones that he's stolen from Best Buy. And I don't know why, I already had my own cell phone, but I was like, this is so fucking hot. Like, what am I, Carmela Soprano? I'm like, give me that hot cell phone. We'll have conversations that Big Brother can't even, I don't even know what's happening, right? So he comes to visit me in New York a couple months later and the cell phones are sitting on the bed and they're like identical. So the phone rings, I assume it's for me and then it's my phone. And I pick the phone and I'm like, hey. And this girl on the other end goes, is Eric there? And I go, who's this? And she goes, "Who it is?" <laughs> and I go, who did (laughs) And that lasted way too long, like we did it a couple more times. But my heart fell in my stomach and I felt like that feeling I had to take a shit again. And I knew exactly what was happening even though I had no idea it was happening at the time and I hung up the cell phone and I looked at him and he looked like he knew what the fuck was going on without me even saying anything. And I had like this Angela Bass in hell moment. (laughs) I was like, shoop, shoop. I was like, get your shit, get your shit and get out! And I just threw his Jordans and his fucking polo and everything else that was probably fucking stolen out the fucking apartment. And he was just like in his like polo boxers. He's like, but we're eating chicken parm. I'm like, get the fuck out. And then he looks at me. He's like, how do I get to JFK? I'm like, figure it out, bitch. And I close the door and I was like, how do you get to JFK? Like, that's what he has to ask me. So I'm like fuming, like I'm shaking. I don't even know what to do, who I call. I'm like 911, like who the fuck? 311, I'm like, who the fuck? Then my phone rings and I pick it up and it's her. Now I don't know how she got my number, the bitch is resourceful. <laughs> and she says, You don't know me, but I know everything about you. Then I had the sinking feeling again and I was like, Okay. And she's like, I know your grandma's birthday is March 1st and she lives in Jamaica because Eric Howe sits for you every year. And I go with him to your parents' house and I fucked him in every room. Aww. Yeah. And then she kept talking about all these instances and I just like black the fuck out. It was like white noise. And I hung up the phone and I did some prison push-ups. <laughs> like la Queen Latifah set it off, like it was real. I was just like, wusa, wusa, like the whole shit. And I had to leave the apartment, so I went to Dojo's, this like really cheap Asian place where you could just eat for $4. And I had a village boy, vo- like I was so broke, and I had a village voice, and I was going through it, just trying to figure out what to do, where to go. And I saw this ad that said, do you have a story to tell? Come take a stand-up class. And I was like, oh, I got a motherfucking story to tell. <laughs> oh, I got a motherfucking story to tell. <laughs> So I took a stand-up class and my first jokes were about him. Um, do you want to hear it? Yeah. Okay, you don't have a choice. Um, my first joke was about him. It's, um, lines at Disney World remind me of my ex-boyfriend. Three hours of waiting for a two-minute ride. Come on, that is good for newbie. That was great! I was like oh my god this is what writing is like this is fucking amazing like I couldn't stop I was like this is my thing I just have to write about him this is how I'm gonna get through it you know what I mean like fuck the alcohol fuck the push ups I'm gonna write about his dick like, that's, what- <laughs> that's, that's the best revenge and then blogging came out and I started blogging about him and my friends are like girl you better be careful you're using his first and last name <laughs> and I was like I don't give a fuck that motherfucker can't read
6: Alright,
5: here's the 411 folks. Say some gangster is dissing your fly girl. Just
3: give him one of these.
4: Hi. Uh, Hi. Hello. I wasn't always a star. I was (laughs) once a uh, just meek, little liberal arts college student, as were all of you. (laughs) I remember that when I graduated school, I went to uh, the new school here in New York. And if you know anything about the new school, this makes uh, sense. (laughs) When I graduated from the new school, all I wanted was to get a 9 to 5 job that would pay for being alive in New York. <laughs> that is all I wanted. And I thought, well, I got good grades, so job, here I come. Because <laughs> I was very smart, but also very stupid. And I thought, well, I have such a great resume, because you know during college... I was addicted and obsessed with internships. I couldn't get enough of them. I was just a little internship whore. One was offered to me and I would say, yes, more internships. I was once an intern for this literary non-for-profit. I would go there and I would sit and then I would leave. I was there for two years. (laughs) To this day, I couldn't begin to tell you what they do. It was always a mystery. One day I'd like to know. So I thought, well, I'm ready for a job. So I, of course, I tried applying. Oh, mind you, I was graduating with a literary studies degree. So I I did what I think everyone does, which is, you know, you email any, like, professor that was ever nice to you, and you're like, hey, um, so, um, Julio, I was in your, like, Kafka and architecture class, um, just, uh, wondering if there are any dogs I can walk. Um, but, no, I wasn't quite desperate yet, and I tried for, like, the, publishing jobs I never got an interview and then I tried just uh, anything vaguely related to what I wanted to do and someone got me an interview at this place called the Meredith Corporation now I was so happy to get an interview and so confident that the only thing that was stopping me from getting a job was like oh they just haven't seen me you know once I get the interview I'll be so charming and they'll just love it and they'll make me the CEO So I I was very cocky, and I didn't research what the Meredith Corporation was. So I just uh, showed up, and in the lobby, I'm just trying to gather context clues of what this place is. (laughs) Meredith Corporation, Meredith Corporation, what are you? And then I gather from the context clues that they publish very niche publications that cater to suburban interests. So like uh, gardening magazines and cooking magazines and like candles that you are never light magazine and (laughs) potpourri magazine. So I thought I can do this. I'm very competent. I can write an article for any of these magazines. So I go into the interview and the first question that the woman asks is, why are you interested in a position in sales? and I fumbled and I was like well I like buying things <laughs> so I feel like being on the other side of that would be um, exciting in the natural progression of my <laughs> hobby of buying things and then I could sense that the interview was just becoming worse it was just bombing the interview and I was like oh i corporation what am I doing here and I was just like I was just going so badly and then there was just a pause when we we're, were like <laughs> <laughs> and I in that moment thought I'm going to save this and then I just said I love corporations <laughs> and I did not get hired <laughs> so then well well then I decided to do something, well, dare I say, risky. Here it comes. You can all guess. I went to the, what's that quote in The Lion King? To that part of the kingdom where the light doesn't, Craigslist. I, I, I went to Craigslist. Mortar. Mortar from Lord of the Rings? Yeah. And then I was still delusional because I went to the like writing-slash-editing section of Craigslist. And I thought, well, you know, I might be going to, like, this scary neighborhood, which is correctly but I'll go to like the nice part in the scary neighborhood, I'll go to the writing editing section and then I see this ad that says looking for PG friendly stories about tickling <laughs> and I'm thinking maybe it's like ghost writing a children's book I write back And I'm like, you know, I graduated from this school and I can write a story about tickling. Sure. He wrote back, he, of course. (laughs) The worst stories in life involve a he. And uh, he wrote back saying, okay, so what I'm looking for is fun guys like yourself to videotape yourself talking straight to camera no nudity, no lewd language, just about how much you love being tickled. (laughs) And I thought, oh, no, I'm definitely in the bad part of town. (laughs) But then it almost felt like a challenge because you should know that I hate being tickled. Maybe I don't hate it, but I think I have the average person's reaction to it, which is, this is annoying. Why is it happening? So I thought, oh, well, what a fun challenge. I think it paid like like $100 per five-minute video. And you're thinking, you're making $100 every five minutes? Well, no, because to get five minutes of footage that I was satisfied with, that was like a day. So I did the first one. Immediately, I just slip into this all-American guy character. So I just start talking about like, oh, you know, like my big brother, he would just pin me down to the floor and he'll tickle me and he'd be like, huh, I'm the tickle monster, who's the tickle monster? And I had to be like, huh, you're the tickle monster. But then I just went to college and I got stronger and stronger and I came back home and then I pinned him down to the floor and I was like, who's the tickle monster now? He loved it. And I was so pleased. Because then you think, okay, so like the first one was like set at home. So like the sequel has to be college, right? So the sequel, I was, me and like my buddies, uh, we were going to join a frat. And the initiation, fuck. It just tickled us all night. And he liked that one. And then I kind of got too ambitious and I really phoned it in with the third one. It was just about like I was with a friend and he started tickling me or something like that. Yeah, I got too cocky because then he wrote back saying, this is no longer working for me. I don't know that I'll ever heal from that. So I had to, you know, move on. And then I replied to this other Craigslist ad that said looking for a magician's assistant (laughs) and I thought well that's just fun but my first question I asked in the email the first and I think the only thing that I asked is does the assistant have to be female or can we just like open our minds and this be like a really like fun thing like can I be the first male I don't know if I would be the first male magician's assistant but I I was like oh maybe I'll Get a job and make some history while I'm at it. (laughs) He writes back like, no, very like choppy sentences. No, that's okay, meet me for an interview and then like the address of a cafe in Soho. And then I go into the cafe and then I realized, oh, I don't know what this magician looks like. (laughs) But then I see a gentleman in all black and a fedora And I think, oh, okay, good. (laughs) So I sit down with him, and he's with this woman who's just sort of like, her face was just grumpy. She was just like, either bored or tired. She was just like, and she, I like said hi to her, and then like, we never got introduced, but I never got a name or anything. She was just like there. And the magician, the first thing he says is, I'm not magician. And it was like, well, uh-huh. Please do go on. And he, he's a little surly, but he's like translating from his native language a lot. So he sounds very pensive and he's just taking his time with every sentence. He goes, I am not a magician. I am saxophone player. And I'm thinking, well, clearly you know the name for the thing you do. So why not... Looking for a saxophone player assistant. Like, why are we hiding that you're a saxophone player? That's okay. In fact, I guarantee more and better responses than a magician's assistant. Like, I'm the only one, like, stupid and weird enough to reply to a magician's assistant ad. But if you're like a saxophone player, like, a lot of people would, wouldn't mind doing that. But he's just like, I am a saxophone player. And I'm like, okay, I have a saxophone. And I'm like, uh huh. Great, you're not renting. (laughs) I have a saxophone and I play at parties. People are laughing, people are having fun. It is a wedding, it is retirement, uh, it's a birthday. They're having fun, I am playing saxophone, any song, Madonna, they're laughing, and then Dick comes out. I was like, why? You just said that people were already having fun. These people are at a retirement party, you just said. And then dick comes out. It doesn't seem like anyone was asking for dick to come out. And he goes, no, no, no. I have special saxophone. I push a button. From the hole in the saxophone, plastic dick comes out. And from the dick... Tequila, vodka, (laughs) and people laugh, they drink. I'm still like a little hung up on like, why Magician's Assistant? (laughs) It's just a lie after a lie after a lie. And then his wife interrupts for the first time. She hasn't said anything She leans over And she sort of like Sees me becoming Less and less interested In the job She leans over And she goes Only saxophone In the world That can do this (laughs) She is I think Sick and tired Of defending this man (laughs) He's like I believe in him. He made it. The dick comes out. I'm sick and tired of explaining it to everyone what my husband does. And I, I ask, like, well, w- what would I do? What do you need me for? And essentially what he wanted was someone to get him booked for parties. And he, I think, wanted to charge or $400 an hour for the saxophone and then he goes but no one can know about Dick Dick must be surprised for everyone so not even the person paying for the service not even the person throwing the party can know that that will happen I thought about it for a little bit. Like, maybe I can be the booker, but of course it didn't happen. It was just like yet another job I didn't succeed getting. But that was not my fault. And uh, now I just do this, I just do comedy, which seems so much easier than getting a nine to five job. Like if you're looking for one, good luck. I don't have any pointers, just uh, be a star. I feel like now this devolved into a Q&A where no Q was asked. <laughs> it started like a commencement speech and now it's a Q&A. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye.
0: This is Sin Kane behind me now, and we just heard from Julio Torres. Before that, a, an interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. And before that, a story from Michelle Buteau. Now, in a little bit, we're going to be hearing from Bowen Yang, who is now a cast member on SNL, the first ever cast member of SNL who is fully of Asian descent. And if you've never heard Bowen's podcast that he does with Matt Rogers called Las Culturistas, it is so much fun but before bowen we're gonna hear from Kamel nanjiani and pete holmes now kamel is oh my gosh he's gonna be on he's gonna be a superhero <laughs> hold on wait what movie is he gonna be in he's gonna be in the eternals playing a you know one of those big marvel comics superhero movies But he's done so much elsewise. He he was on HBO's Silicon Valley, and he had a beautiful movie called The Big Sick a couple years ago. He'll be telling his story alongside Pete Holmes. Pete Holmes had a big HBO series as well called Crashing. But before Pete and Kumail, we're going to hear from Francesca Ramsey. Francesca has done so much work on MTV and MSNBC, Comedy Central. I mean, she's all over the place. Uh, broad City, totally biased with Kamal Bell. Francesca is an absolute delight, and we'll hear her right after this little montage with a story we call Mom and Mushrooms. Two, three, four, five, and 500 episodes, 500 episodes. 500 episodes of Risk, the most bizarre, crazy, wonderful, beautiful, essential podcast ever to have graced the internet.
4: 500 episodes. 500
0: episodes.
6: Happy 500, Risk, and here's to 500 more. This is Tanya. I'm a huge fan for five years and also an aspiring storyteller. I can't wait to be on the podcast one day. Thanks for everything you do, Kevin.
0: Hey, yo, Dave Hugh
5: from the Risk Live show and podcast. After all these years of pitching to Risk, guess what? Hard work pays off. That shit is mad ill. Just like Rudy wanted to play football for Notre Dame. Happy 500 Risk. Word.
3: Happy 500th episode of <laughs> happy 500th episode risk uh, this is Elna Baker a storyteller for risk and without risk I would never have had a place to tell my most daring stories or talk about the smell of my pussy. Hey, it's JC Cassis, the producer of Risk. I want to say congratulations to the Risk team on 500
2: amazing episodes. I love all you guys. I love this show, and here's to 500 more.
0: My name's Ray Christian, and I'm a risk storyteller. And I'd like to congratulate the team on reaching 500 episodes. Congratulations, Risk, and many more.
4: 500
0: Keep it up, Kevin. Keep it up, team. Keep telling stories. Keep taking risks.
6: So when I was in high school, I had very much like the tortured relationship with my mom, like the teenage angsty relationship. Think Ladybird, but less basic. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of, kind of story. And so when I was a freshman in high school, for example, I pierced my own nose. And it was this huge blowout with my mom. Meanwhile, my cool best friend, her mom actually took her to get her nose pierced. I also remember in sophomore year, I was so upset with my mom because she would not buy me Jinko jeans, like the big flared uh, jeans, not just because they were super expensive, but also because she informed me that they were not flattering. Way to be honest, mom. So uh, my senior year, shortly after I graduated from high school, I was working at Blockbuster, which tells you how old the story is. There was no Netflix and chill. Netflix did not exist. Uh, We only had Blockbuster and bust. We just put it right out there what we were doing. So my coworker and I, after work one day, decided to go to her house and eat some mushrooms. And I'm not talking about the artisanal mushrooms the psychedelic kind and so we start tripping and my mom calls I'm like shit she's like where are you, what are you doing and when are you going to be home so I decide to tell her like a half truth and say mom I'm at my friend's house we've been drinking and I'm going to spend the night here because it's not safe for me to drive home I'll come home in the morning and I think like this is I'm being an un, you know responsible underage drinker <laughs> This did not fly with my mom. I think because this is the type of thing that my like affluent white friends would say to their parents. You know, the parents that are like, I don't like it when you drink, but I'd rather you do it in my home. Uh, My mom is not that at all. Uh, She's more like Claire Huxtable without the rapist husband. She is very regal and poised and she doesn't take anybody's shit. She also like, doesn't really have the context of recreational drug usage. I smoked weed every single day in high school and told her it was a candle, and she believed me. So, so she like flips out. So she comes over to my friend's house, scoops me up, we go home, and it is very clear that I am not drunk. I can only imagine that I looked like a black Powerpuff girl with, like, these giant saucer eyes and, like, a crusty perm and a Blockbuster uniform on, which was probably just, like, really terrifying. I don't know if you've ever taken mushrooms before, but the ideal situation is that you, like, listen to Radiohead and maybe watch The Nightmare Before Christmas to see if they sync up. They don't. (laughs) Or you take an hour playing with aluminum foil, and maybe your dog does a TED talk. (laughs) You don't wanna trip mushrooms with your mom, especially not mine. So my mom was so angry that she looked like a flaming devil, like her hair was on fire, and she was bright red, and I could feel and like smell her anger, and it did not smell very good. And she was like, what did you do? And I'm like, well, just calm down, mom. I just took some mushrooms. They're from the earth. And I did my research. You have to eat three times your body weight in order to die if you take mushrooms. Like, very responsible. And mom's like, oh, 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 you researched. You research. Where did you do this research? And I'm like, on my laptop. Oh, the laptop I bought you for college. And she's like, waving the laptop, but it's now like a giant like parasail, and it's like waving back and forth. It's kind of like the Foo Fighters video where their hands are all big. It was just really weird. So my mom's like, you need to sober up, and so she makes me take a shower, which I you know, sounds like a good idea, but when you're tripping, it's a fucking great idea. <laughs> like, I was like, like having like an emotional experience in the shower. My mom's like, get out of the shower! Like, <laughs> cause I was like loving it. So I get out of the shower and I am like butt ass naked, having like the time of my life. I climb a bookshelf, I pull the whole bookshelf down and then I go to my mom's like elephant cabinet. My mom collects these like little elephants from all over the world doing all kinds of cool things like drinking tea and maybe there's an elephant that's like a baker and there's an elephant that's a gynecologist that wants to talk to you about the IUD. It's like very adorable. So I like open the cabinet and I just start like smashing elephants. I'm just like this is fucking great. And my mom is like really worried. So she calls 911. <laughs> so I ended up going to the hospital, and I was put into the psych ward for three days. They would not let me leave. And so while I was there, I was so mad. I was just like, God, this is so obnoxious. I had to take these, like, therapy sessions, and everybody was going around the circle telling, you know, how they ended up here and how drugs had ruined their life. And, you know, there were people who their relationships had ended. They couldn't see their kids. They lost their jobs. Like, their whole family had fallen apart because of drugs. And then they get to me, and I'm like, Ugh, I'm going to act. I just graduated from school. I'm going to college for acting, and I just took some mushrooms, and my mom freaked out, and that's why I'm here. And I'm just kind of like rolling my eyes, thinking that everyone's gonna agree with me. Like, this is ridiculous. And instead, the whole tone of the circle changed, and everybody was like, what are you doing? It was, like, scared straight. Everyone was like, you have promise. You have talent. You're beautiful. I was like, thanks. And they're like, you don't need to be here. Like, you're going to make something in your life. Like, this is what drugs can do to you. They can ruin your life. And I had this moment of, like, whoa, like, these people are saying to me what I believe, like, my mom wanted to say to me, but she couldn't because she was mourning the death of her elephants. (laughs) And I just thought to myself, like, Wow, like this is where I could end up. And in reality, like I was going down the wrong path. Like, what my mom didn't know is I was taking Xanax with my friends and I was buying Adderall off of my classmates and I had friends that were doing Coke and heavy drugs. Like, I really could have gone down a path of more serious drug usage if it hadn't been for that moment. And I thought about my mom calling 911 and overhearing her say to the dispatcher, I'm afraid my daughter's gonna die. And I realized, like, I really fucked up, majorly. And after I got out, my relationship with my mom was very awkward for quite a long time. Um, I would not suggest taking mushrooms with your mom in order to mend your relationship. <laughs> but in many ways, it did make us closer. I went off to college, and I cleaned up my act and I decided that I was just going to be like super honest with her. I spared her all the nitty-gritty details, but I would call her and I would tell her, I'm going to this party, here's who's going to be there, people are going to be doing drugs, but I am not, I'm not drinking. I just suddenly put it all out on the table, and for a long time I looked at this experience as like the worst thing that could ever happen to me, and now I don't. I look at it as I understand why she did what she did, She was trying to be a parent, and she was looking at this experience as to where it could go. You know, my mother's family has been destroyed by drug usage. Her brothers ruined their marriages, their relationships with their kids because of drugs, and she didn't want me to go down that path. And your mom's job is not to be your friend, it's to be your parent. And so today we are very, very close. We talk every single day, and I'm so thankful for that. And looking back, I say, you know what? I didn't have a cool mom I had an excellent mom, and she's still an excellent mom to this day.
7: Look out,
2: look out, big elephants on parade, here they come, hippity-hoppity, they're here and there.
1: Look out, look out, they're walking around the bed on the head,
5: clippity-cloppity, parade, In brave big elephants on parade.
1: <laughs> uh, so uh, I'll tell this quick story about Impulse. Um, I'll uh, ruin it.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> I had a very, very conservative Muslim upbringing. Very conservative, this was in Pakistan. We were told, when I was a little kid, when I was eight, I was told that looking at a woman with a lustful gaze was the same sin, this is true, as stabbing the prophet's nephew in the back while he is praying. (laughs) I like how they got to that, because they were like, well, it's as bad as stabbing the prophet's nephew. Oh, that's not bad enough. Maybe he's turned away because no. he's praying.
0: Oh, that's Oh Now it. I feel bad for looking at that one. Yeah,
1: so, so I was terrified of girls. And I remember very specifically, I have this specific moment, I was around 10. You know that Cindy Crawford commercial, the Diet Pepsi one? I remember I was... Uh, uh, this, she's in the convertible and the hair is blowing in the breeze and she gets out and she's wearing these tight jeans and this Those tight shirt. Those jeans stab
0: so many nephews. Yeah.
3: <laughs>
1: exactly. I was like watching it like because she like puts the money in the vending machine oh, and she I gets remember. this wet cylindrical can. Yep. Then she puts it to her lips and I was like, I am stabbing the fuck out of the prophet's nephew right now. <laughs> well, but at brain. that point I didn't know what sex was, you know. Like I don't know what I would do if I was in a room alone. Like probably just like squeeze her mole. I, I would do that today. That would be awesome today. It's like- <laughs> But uh, then, all that went away. My cousin gave me this videotape. Like, out of nowhere. I I don't know what sex is or anything. He gives me this videotape.
0: A pornographic (laughs) videotape.
1: There's there's some squeezing, but that's not the main event, you know? So I put it in. I saw it for 30 seconds. I put it out at a fever for two days. (laughs) I was like, I promised God. I literally looked up to the ceiling. I was like, I'll never do this again. Then two weeks later, I got curious, you know? I didn't give it a chance to develop sure what is the motivation of these characters i put it in and then you get a so weird side note to this This is a weird part of the story is so one of the tapes they gave me is a regular porn like beginning to end men women different combinations you know porn but the pre- this is completely true but the preview before it just a two minute preview before it was for a movie where the people uh defecate on each other you mean porn <laughs> It was way too early for me to see porn, but it's definitely way too early for me to realize that there was a fetish where people excreted in each other. That was
3: Hitler's
4: fetish, they say.
1: Was it really? Yeah. I remember, first of all, what I love is that it's a regular porn, but that's the preview. Yeah. They're like, do you like sex? Well, then you might like shitting on people. (laughs) Do you like driving a car? Well, then maybe you want to drown in a submarine that's on fire.
0: Aren't you so glad that you're not into shit porn? Oh
1: my God. What if I was like, that's it? That's what I've been looking for. Cindy Crawford's great and all, but she has almost no shit on her face. Little to no shit. If I squint, I can pretend the mole is uh, a little, wow, little dollop. Very good. Yeah, bringing it all back. Muminous. But honestly, this is true. Like it happened to me so early. Like I think of it a lot. Not in a sexual way. It's just a reference. that shit. I, Yeah. Like I think some synapse in my brain formed, and it's just a reference that comes up. Yeah. Like I'll see somebody run a red light, and I'm like, he ran a red light. But what do I know? Sometimes people shit on each other. <laughs> It's like my Hitler reference.
0: Your world was flipped upside down.
1: Yeah. So okay, but back to the regular porn. Please, so no, I was watching no. it, and I would watch it whenever my parents were out of the house, uh, and I was getting better at it, you know. The porn. Better at not having to watch it for as long. Jane off. Yeah. Less and less time bringing, it, bringing so it to the finale. Each time, yeah. And like, then followed by the guilt-ridden shower, you know? Yeah. I just think I'm going to hell. It's all part of it. But it's the strong... It is all part of it. It's yeah, the thing, I'm like, this is awesome! What have I done? Yeah.
0: You know, sex. It's an eight ball. Yeah, it's, it's an and ball. Coke.
1: So I just feel uh, this fucking thing of... That's, but it's like, that's the impulse, you know? It's like the impulse that's like, let our species to fucking evolve and survive. I'm just a ten-year-old boy with a dick. I can't fight that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I was watching this tape, and uh, sometimes the electricity goes. And when right. the electricity goes, you don't know if it's gone for five minutes, or if it's gone for five days. One day I'm at home alone. It's the afternoon. My mom's running errands. I'm almost done, you know. So I'm watching this VC VHS, and hear the, the electricity goes. Cart in. Yeah, the electricity goes, and I am fucked because I can't get the tape out of the VCR. Yeah, and I start freaking out, and I'm like, all right, I'm just gonna have to run away. (laughs) I'm just gonna pack my bags and walk the earth, which sucks because I love my parents, and I'm like 11. Like, what am I gonna do for money? Just go town to town? Any work needs doing? I can beat Mario and draw a Ninja Turtle. Do you have any openings? I remember specifically being like, oh, I'll steal my dad's business suit. That way I can grow into it and then go on job interviews. So my whole plan is to ride out the next 10 years on the streets of Karachi, which CNN once called city of terror. That is true. BBC was much kinder. They called it city of nightmares. Which at least implies that we have dreams, you know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Completely true. So then I was like... It's a difficult Call of Duty level. Yeah,
1: I was like, I can't do that. (laughs) It is, but I know all the hiding spots. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, hide in there. I used to rent movies at this place. (laughs) Mr. Siddiqui will give us shelter. (laughs) So, I... But then I have this idea. I can't run away. I get my dad's toolkit. I'm like, I'll be. Oh, oh, I'll open up the VCR and just get the tape out. Okay. How? So I take the cover off. And I don't know what I... I thought I'd just be able to get the tape right out. Just like pick it up off the velvet cushion it's sure. sitting on. There's no velvet cushion. It's buried on layers and layers of parts. So So I'm like, I have to get to... Because the hard thing for me is I have to... I'm like, I'll oh, just have to get in the tape. So I just unscrew, I pull everything out, and like, it's like that small. There's a hundred parts, that small. I'm like, I'll be able to put this back together. <laughs> it's not like engineers made this thing, <laughs> which is exactly who had made it. <laughs> so I get it out, I finally get to the tape, I rip it out, and I look behind me, and the whole floor is covered in tiny VCR parts. I have no fucking idea how they go back. So I'm putting everything back in, it's very difficult. I'm sweating into the VCR. Uh, I wish I'd taken notes, diagrams, something. I finally get everything in, I put the cover on, I screw it, success. And then I look behind me, there are two little parts <laughs> just sitting there. I have no idea where they go. So I go and I hide them. Cause in my head, I think if my dad sees them, he's gonna know exactly what happened. <laughs> you know, he's like, isn't that the transmogrifier for the VCR? And that's the flux capacitor you've been watching porn. <laughs> So, the VCR works after that, but it's never the same, you know? It's got this look in its eyes like it's been through a war, you know? You know? <laughs> oh, you haven't seen the things I've seen. Charlie! It just says Charlie. <laughs> the fast forward doesn't always work, it makes this clicking sound all the time. So, a couple of weeks later, my mom's like, oh, I'm gonna take it to get it fixed. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'll take it to get it fixed. So, I take it to the guy, and I give it to the VCR repair guy and he plugs it in and it starts making that clicking sound. And it's the sound he's heard before. And he looks at me and he leans in and he says, next time you get a tape stuck in there, bring it to me. I won't tell your parents. (laughs) I thought of all the clicking sounds in all the houses where little Pakistani boys had ripped tapes out of (laughs) VCRs. Completely true. He knew right away what had happened. It's fantastic. I really liked your story. Thanks, Pete. <laughs> you want to hear a weird PS to that story that won't be in the podcast? Yeah, sure. Later, I, when I got like 14, I got like really bold. You know how you could hook up VCRs and uh, record stuff? onto I started uh, recording my favorite scenes in the middle of like kid VHSs that I owned. Like... You mean kid porn? No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll put regular porn in the middle of kid porn.
0: Because kid porn it. is
1: okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very complicated religion. Sure. <laughs> lot of ins, lot of outs. Um, so no, but like, like Roger Rabbit. I would record all my copies of all my movies had like porn in the middle. So like Roger Rabbit, like takes a total left turn. <laughs> They abandoned the Toontown plot. (laughs) And the way they play patty cake is very different. Then I would like, I would like give loan videos to my friends. I was like the porn supplier. I was making boner jams when I was like 14. And it was awesome for them because it was just like Jurassic Park. You know, it's like a reverse Trojan horse. They could just take it, parents don't care. But the fucking best thing I did with that, this is true. The best thing I did is, uh, okay, you guys know the movie Mask. I don't mean I don't mean Jim Carrey with the green face. I mean like Cher with the kid with the big face, you know. I gave my friend the movie Mask with porn in the middle. Let me rephrase that. I gave him the movie Mask and I told him there was porn in the middle, but there was no porn. It was a prank. So he became the first guy in history to watch the entirety of Mass with an erection. No porn, just a disfigured kid touching lives and then dying. He called me afterwards and he was like, I'm not even angry, that was great.
2: <laughs> That's brilliant. That's
6: brilliant.
1: The weird post, uh, what happened after that is like I moved away from Pakistan and then my mom sold all my VHS's. <laughs> So there's some little kid in Pakistan watching Dick Tracy like, this movie gets really good.
4: (laughs) When I wake up,
0: well, I know I'm going to work. I'm going to work the next Risk episode for you.
4: And when it goes out, y'all know I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man who makes the next one too. 'Cause I have made
5: 500 files and I will make 500
0: more, just to be the man who's made a thousand files of Frisco, all adore. Da-da-da-da. 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 Da-da-da-da.
2: Happy 500th episode, Risk. Oh my God. This is Cindy Freeman. I am one of the story coaches. I also work with Story Studio. This is my best job ever. I have so many stories that I can't tell my family. It's amazing.
6: What's up,
0: everybody? This is T.S. Madison, a storyteller at Risk. And I just want to give a big shout out and happy 500th episode to Risk. It's
3: been a long journey, but guess what? We here. Happy 500. Hi, I'm Gigi, a teacher at the story studio. Happy 500, Risk. Wow. Your show inspires me to have more compassion, courage, and curiosity, especially for stories about bodily fluids. And for that, I thank you. Love you, Risk. Happy 500, Risk. I'm Timon, a risk fan since 2015. Thanks for making my life more dangerous. Nowadays, with most of the stupid stuff I do, my head goes, this is a bad idea but it'll probably make for a good Risk story.
0: Hey, this is Brad Lawrence, story producer and casting director for Risk, and I just wanted to come on and say happy 500 to us and to all the fans and to Kevin, and I am looking forward to another 500 episodes. And I'm looking forward to sending out more awesome stories into the world.
2: Oh,
0: I've edited 500 files and I'll edit up 500 more just to be the man who'd edited the thousand files of rescue You All Adore.
5: All right. Hi. Um. So, the most meaningful, one of the most meaningful interactions I've had with my mother was when she read aloud to me a transcript of a gay cybersex chat window I left open. Um, And coincidence, that was also the way I came out to her. so I was 17. Uh, I was coming home from school. In uh, my left hand, I had my violin case. In my right hand, I had a script for our school's production of Anything Goes. Um, and as soon as I set foot in the door, I could feel the air hanging thick. I could immediately tell something was wrong. And I walked upstairs to find my mother slumped into the curvature of her office chair. She'd been crying for hours, it looked like. And in her hand she held the printed chat log. As soon as she saw me, she launched into this like recitation of this locker room role play fantasy that uh, I was engaging in with this 19-year-old stranger from Texas, as far as I knew. Um, and she read it line by line. She shook the entire time. She mumbled through the words she didn't understand. She stuttered through her accent, and she stopped every few lines to sob. And um, just as she was reading this thing that was, uh, you know, making her worst nightmare come true, uh, which was that her only son was a homosexual. And so I don't remember if I begged her to stop because, of course, it was mortifying. I don't remember if I begged her to stop or uh, if I just stood there speechless. But what I do remember was hating myself for making her feel this sad. And I remember feeling the blood flush out of my face, my eyes widening, and uh, my face going limp just totally paralyzed and so that's the closest thing I have to a coming out story because uh, unlike most respectable 21st century gays I did not muster up the courage to approach my parents with the intent to tell them I was gay and so instead I'm left with uh, like being caught in the act and uh, having it be like a really good episode of to catch a predator um, (laughs) where like I'm the predator and my mom is like a hysterically weeping Chris Hansen Um, Just like reading the transcript. So anyway, um, my parents, who are Chinese immigrants, uh, weren't religious per se, but they did believe in a higher power that happened to hate gay people. (laughs) Um, And they took issue with homosexuality more on like a base level family values place. And it was about keeping up the family line. I was the only son. And so uh, the immediate aftermath that followed um, the cyber sex outing scandal in our house was uh, the three of us, my father, my mother, and I, having these really overwrought, long conversations in the living room, and then they were all punctuated by these quiet, sad meals, uh, where we all just cried into our authentic Chinese dishes. (laughs) Um, And guys, tofu dishes are seasoned great with teardrops, let me tell you. And so after one such meal on one such day, my dad calls me down to his computer to show me a website for an ex-gay therapy clinic. Um, Yeah, it was in Colorado Springs, which was two hours from where we lived in Denver. And the name of this clinic was called The Center for Men and Boys, which like the name alone is like the biggest dick-shaped carrot to dangle in front of self-loathing gay men, right? So, the Center for Men and Boys was run by this man <laughs> named Scott Sutherland. And I'm using his quote unquote real name because sidebar a lot of ex gay therapists take up aliases because they hop around from town to town uh, to escape like activists and uh, to avoid hate mail and Googling and all that stuff. It's real, it's real. It's like a survival tactic for them. So, this guy Scott ran um, this clinic, and his previous credentials included residency at the a gape psychological clinic. Yeah, a gape, as in how you would describe a Power Bottom's anus. <laughs> Another dick-shaped carrot, or an anus-shaped carrot. Um, so, so this website uh, promised to cure a quote-unquote unwanted same-sex attraction, and it specialized in emotionally disturbed boys. And so I read this and uh, just had this sick feeling in my stomach. And that's when my dad turned to me, took off his glasses, said, I've already booked several appointments for you. I will be driving you down to this clinic every week. And so um, I didn't really have much of a say in the matter because, uh, one, I was emotionally drained, and, two, um, I was still feeling the shame. And that's the kind of shame that, like, makes you overeat or uh, apply to grad school. Um, it's like... It's like, ultimately, you know, it's not good for you, but you do it anyway. Uh, And it was the same kind of shame that days before with my mother uh, uh, made me feel the blood flush from my face, my eyes widen, my face going limp, uh, just totally paralyzed. So a week later, my dad and I make our first trip down to Colorado Springs to see Scott, and the drive down is painfully quiet, just like our meals. And then once we finally get to Colorado Springs, uh, we meet Scott and Expectations of him, I didn't even know I had, were completely shattered. He was this tall, bald, like boringly dressed man, and going in, I expected some uh, like repressed Kinsey Five, um, just a closet case uh, who was just like peddling this false hope and he uh, was just this devastatingly straight man, it seemed, who led me into his office that was decorated with devastatingly straight furnishings. It's just a small room, about the size of like, like half the size of this stage. Uh, The walls were painted like green, gray, everything was in neutral tones, the furniture was tacky. Um, And on the walls were his like diplomas, they might have been fake, and uh, like a couple of shitty Bob Ross paintings. And so he sat me down and uh, started our first session by asking me if I wanted this experience to be secular or Christ-centered. Because he specialized in both, and I told him um, secular because I'm not religious. And then in the back of my mind, I thought, but wait, if he does both, and that just means the secular experience is a secretly Christ-centered one. <laughs> anyway, and that's uh, that's when I noticed on his desk this framed picture of him and what looked like his wife and two kids, who were about my age. All of a sudden, this like unevolved lizard brain part of me wanted that for myself. I thought, oh yeah, like I want that. I want to be in my own version of that picture someday with a happy family and maybe that never intersects with a gay lifestyle and so all of a sudden that picture became sort of aspirational to me and I thought you know I can get through this weird crazy therapy if I can get my life looking anything like that photo. And so then this weird thing started happening where I actually enjoyed the therapy with Scott and the reason being was because those first two sessions, we didn't really talk about anything gay-related. It was just like pretty solid therapy, um, actually, where I made like a few breakthroughs um, with like my self-confidence and the way I verbalized my emotions or the way I was mindful of myself. And um, Scott would like regularly ask me things, like, or tell me things <laughs> that were, uh, for example, uh, oh, yeah, you're so much smarter than you realize, or so much more capable than you realize, or. Just get out of your own way, and um, I agree, you should have been cast as the lead in Anything Goes. Um, And and I I would enjoy these, yeah, well, you know what? In that show, I was typecast as one of the Asian stowaways. It was horrible. So these therapy sessions started out pretty, pretty good. I mean, I would leave them feeling better than I did going in. And then another weird, pleasant surprise that came out of this was that the drives to and from the center back home were also very nice as well with my father. We found ways to fill the silence. We had, like, idle banter going on between us. We cracked jokes, and um, weirdly, it felt new to both of us because we had never had that kind of candor before. And so uh, we would make pit stops at diners or get snacks at gas stations and just talk, and we were just, like, two guys on a road trip uh, every week. And so... And this sounds so cheesy, but like uh, it was like for the first time, uh, it felt like my dad and I were finally friends. And in some weird way, I had Scott to thank for that. And then things took a dark turn when it was about our fifth or sixth session. Scott and I were in the middle of some exchange, and I had like mumbled through a sentence. And Scott asked me to repeat back what I said. I did, and then I followed it up with, um, "Oh, but I'm I'm so sorry. I mumbled like oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> like in that frenetic uh, but like soft-spoken way." which is still my bread and butter. Uh, But anyway, I... (laughs) So I apologized, said, oh yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and then he snapped, why are you saying you're sorry? Why are you apologizing? And I froze because he had never talked to me in that tone before. And there was just this pregnant pause and then he finally kept going. He said, apologizing too much is a sign of weakness. Don't apologize for things when you haven't done anything wrong. Apologizing is not attractive. Which is a weird thing to say to your therapy patient, um, but looking back, it made sense because if ex gay therapy is in principle reverse engineering like your outward expression as a gay man, then like attractiveness, I guess to him was like his way of molding me into like this hetero ideal, but it was just a very bizarre moment, and all of a sudden therapy started to feel a little disturbing. I left the sessions feeling worse than when I went in, and then I just thought that you know maybe. Maybe this wasn't worthwhile. Maybe there was a better way to sort of make sense of all my feelings. And also he was making me feel bad about something that I shouldn't have felt bad about in the first place. So that was weird. And that's when Scott started to finally pathologize my sexuality. It was the next week when he asked me to talk him through a recent time that I had been attracted to a man. And all of a sudden I felt the room get a little smaller. I noticed for the first time it was this windowless Four walled, horribly shittily decorated room. And I obliged, even though I was uncomfortable, and I said, Okay, well, yeah, one time a couple weeks ago, I was out uh, at lunch, um, and then I saw this guy who sat down at a table next to me, and he looked kind of cute. Um, and I thought he looked nice. And Scott says, Okay, well, how did you feel? And I thought, I, I felt fine. And he goes, No, 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 no. How did you physically? physically feel? How did that attraction manifest in your physicality? And I didn't really know how to respond to that. Um, I said, well, I guess, you know, I was tired or something. And 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 he asked me what my posture was. I said, I might have slouched a little bit. And then he snaps and goes, there it is. That's what I was looking for. And then he leans back in his chair, and then goes off into this explanation where he says, same-sex attractions come from when we feel a lot of inner turmoil, or when we're not feeling good about ourselves, or it's at the mercy of these negative circumstances that are happening outside. And uh, I just want you to think about that, Bowen, the next time you feel attracted to a man. And at the time, I didn't have the knowledge to like totally debunk that logic, because it makes no sense. Um, I knew that something he said was wrong and I walked out of that session again feeling very disturbed, tapped my dad on the shoulder, we drove home, I didn't say a word to him. The next week was our last session because I was moving away to college within the month and I wouldn't be back in Colorado regularly so there was this, you know, marked end to our time together. And then once I got to the therapy room, I could tell Scott wanted to end on some strong, impactful note. And so he sits me down and he says, Bowen, I hope you've given a lot of thought to what I told you last week about where same-sex attractions come from and how you feel bad about yourself and that's why you're attracted to men. So I have this perfect story that's gonna illustrate this for you that happened to a former patient of mine. And I go, okay, I listened and he started telling the story Uh, He said, Bowen, this patient of mine was driving around the highways of California, and uh, it was late at night, and he was trying to get home to his wife and kids, and all of a sudden he got lost, and he drove off and ended up in San Bernardino, which, let me tell you, isn't somewhere you want to end up in. (laughs) And that's when I started to, you know, look for a Denny's, and I ended up parking in a Denny's got out of the car, sat down to grab a cup of coffee just to get me through the night. And then that's when I saw the waiter who I thought was pretty cute. And then after I got the check, I left my number on a napkin, hoping that he would call me and he did. And I met up with him later, but Bowen, I want to tell you that it's a shame that my patient, and then he stops. Because if you didn't notice, he slipped very seamlessly into the first person. And it was very clearly obvious that that was a story about him and not some former patient he made it sound like this happened pretty recently and it made it all the more mortifying when he caught himself slipping so that I saw his face and I saw that the blood flushed from his cheeks, his eyes widened, his face went limp, just totally paralyzed. And I saw the same shame that I felt when my mom caught me in that cyber sex chat. And it was the same shame that led me to Scott in the first place that made me think that I was so desperate enough that there was a hope for a different life. And in that moment, I thought that, um, you know, being gay is something you can change, and even if you want it to change, you can't change it. And the fact that I was sitting in that room with him meant that I wanted to change it, and I couldn't change it. And so, Scott was really mortified. It was the last time I ever spoke to him or saw him. It was a very awkward goodbye. And whether or not he was tacitly admitting to having sex with Denny's waiters on the side, Remains to be known for sure. Who knows how often he does that. Um, but I went home that day and just knew in my own heart that uh, that shame wasn't strong enough to sort of change this thing about me and that it wasn't even worth having in the first place. So I shed that pretty quickly after that last session. And um, obviously the therapy didn't work. Um <laughs> I'm here. I am. I have zero shame about being gay. Oh my god, you guys! It's the best. It's <laughs> give it up for gayness. Um, it's just made my life so much better. And my parents to this day still don't really approve. But um, if there's one thing I wouldn't trade in that experience of ex-gay therapy would be. <laughs> the drives with my dad because again, we were friends for the first time. We had bonded meaningfully. and since going through XK therapy, uh, my family and I we've said I love you to each other more than we ever used to. Um, and we mean it, all of us. And um, I'd like to think that me trying XK therapy was my way of making an effort to understand my parents. I'd like to think that someday my parents will make an effort to try to understand me. And I'd like to think that somewhere, Scott is having sex with a Denny's waiter. And that he doesn't have to feel ashamed of it. Thank you.
0: That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Ben Talmy behind me now. We just heard from Bowen Yang. and before that, a little montage of some of our favorite storytellers and risk fans and risk staff members. And Jeff Barr, our episode editor, created a little song out of it where he sang500 miles by the proclaimers, but with a cockney accent and before that a story by Kamel nanjiani and pete holmes before that a little interstitial from the movie dumbo and before that francesca ramsey oh and before that we heard another one of those little montages of staff members and risk fans and storytellers Uh, but it was john lasala our other audio editor who created a song for that montage where you heard him sing speaking. So we've heard both of our audio editors singing as well on this episode because special occasions call for strange measures.
4: Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders
3: with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free
4: 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Folks, we are so
0: thankful for all of our fans and all of our staff and all of our storytellers for 500 Episodes 500 episodes, and you know, (laughs) here's the thing an episode of Risk takes a hell of a lot more work than an episode of, well, you know, the kind of podcast where a couple of people are just shooting the shit, for example. Although, I'm always tempted to start another podcast of me shooting the shit with people now, guys. The next Risk live stream show. Is going to be on July 11th that's a Saturday July 11th at 9 p.m. Eastern 6 p.m. Pacific okay and the next one after that is going to be July 17th at 10 p.m. Eastern 7 p.m. Pacific I have to say, the last one we did, which was, I guess, Friday night, was so moving. I can't believe how solid these live streams have been. I feel like a broken record saying that, that how much they mean to us and how much they seem to mean to the fans, but it really is a unique communal experience to be live, Watching a person speaking from their home but speaking directly to this whole audience live and then doing a QA afterwards, there's just something very like in this time where it's very hard to feel connected, it's the closest thing, it's really remarkable, and we've thoroughly enjoyed them and been so grateful that they've worked out so well so come to the next ones please do uh, the next one is uh, July eleventh. Uh, that's a Saturday 9 p.m. Eastern 6 p.m. Pacific and the one after that is July 17th 10 p.m. Eastern 7 p.m. Pacific oh and you can always get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour which is now a somewhat ironic thing for that page to be named since we ain't going nowhere folks. There are so many ways to get engaged and be involved with the risk community on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are at risk show on Facebook. We have a very, very vibrant Community called the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group. And there's a subreddit called Risk Podcast. You can also comment on stuff there. Don't forget, at thestorystudio.org, there are so many classes. There are classes you can take in person with other people online, or one-on-one stuff you can do there, or you can uh, get our video courses and take them in your own time. That is all at thestorystudio.org. Corporate workshops are still available there, too. Our corporate workshops get so many raves. We've worked for clients like Google and Pfizer and Citibank and American Express. We've done workshops at places like NYU and uh, Princeton University. We've done workshops at a lot of big corporations that uh, have non-disclosure agreements and don't want us to say their names because they're competitors with other people we've done corporate workshops with. <laughs> but the point is, those corporate workshops are an incredible way to build morale, get teamwork working more efficiently, and get people psyched to like actually tell stories about your projects your mission your brand whatever it might be that is all at thestorystudio.org as for myself i do one-on-one training with people you can find me at kevinallison.com and you can get little fun video messages from me for yourself or for a friend at cameo.com slash the kevin allison oh also on twitter and instagram I'm at the Kevin Allison. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Folks, oh my goodness. <laughs> Here, I, I really, really, and truly do hope that there are 500 more of these. All right? Okay. Folks, today's the day. <laughs> Take a risk. Penises and buttholes. Penises and buttholes. Penises and butts. Penises and buttholes. Penises and buttholes. penises and butts.